Good job. So the permit and all, all aspects of that permit would go away. Removing the government permission slip. Florida lawmakers file permitless concealed carry firearms almost rule free. Removing uh, the training to make you a competent firearm carrier doesn't sound like a great public safety measure to me. Restoring freedoms or risking violence? What's in the bill? Arrival and departure, all expenses paid. Florida plans to put migrant transport into law. What we're doing uh, is not the ultimate solution. I think it's opening people's eyes to the solution. The special session bill and the details. Change of course, advanced African-American history. When you're not teaching students and the facts, they are bound to, uh, to repeat it. Improved or politically whitewashed. Insulted because of the hard work that we have put into developing the course. Hear firsthand from the framers. Yeah, Ben, you won't believe it. Black history in the making. South Florida's Montfort Point Marines. We have a living legend. Discovering connections with a local 10 connection. The big news of the week and the newsmakers all live this week in South Florida. Good Sunday morning. I'm Glenna Milberg. A lot to get to this hour. We begin with the first step this week for Florida to become the 26th state in the nation to allow permit-free concealed carry of firearms and other weapons. The bill filed in the Florida House this week would make gun purchase and ownership almost rule-free for law-abiding citizens 21 and older. The House Speaker called it removing the government permission slip, taking away background checks, finger printing and any sort of firearm safety training requirements. Supporters say it restores Second Amendment rights to law-abiding citizens. Opponents say it is putting politics over public safety. We here take a partisan-free approach and we dig into both perspectives to flesh out what to expect. We begin right there with State Rep. Brandy Fine, Republican from Brevard County, who is one of the co-sponsors of House Bill 543, Florida's current concealed carry bill. Bill. It is so good to have you aboard, Representative Fine. Great to see you again. I know you can't see us, but we can see you. I can see you, and I'm happy to be here. Oh, okay, awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, it is uh, this bill is no, shouldn't be a surprise to anyone paying attention because the governor and House leadership have been telegraphing that it's coming and are very supportive. Start start us out today by framing why do we need this bill? Well, 25 other states have it right now, and the fact of the matter is every state has permitless carry. They just have it for criminals. See, having gun laws don't create magic force fields that make people do things. And today, criminals carry guns without permits all over the state. All we're proposing to do is give law-abiding citizens the same rights and freedoms that criminals are doing right now. So the, the most opposition that we've heard covering that was since the bill was filed on Monday was the component that sort of takes out any sort of training requirement. To your point, we don't know which criminals are trained on guns or not. But, but that seems to be a real fear that people now can just buy guns and go out there and conceal them and use them without having any sort of proficiency training. And, and to, to require that sort of takes away the spirit of the law. But, but is there some compromise that can be made there? 
Well, I, I would remind people that nothing about this bill changes the permitting requirement to purchase a gun. That was something that you actually got wrong in your upfront statement. Whatever you have to do to buy a gun, that doesn't change. But carrying that gun, once you've gone through that full background check, you will not need a government permission slip for. And again, I would note that today, um, criminals are not required to go and get training, whatever training the left wants in order to carry those guns. We're simply creating an even playing field and we're standing with the rights of law-abiding citizens. Our opponents, on the other hand, unfortunately want to give criminals special rights that law-abiding citizens don't have. Well, we will be talking to one of those opponents in our next segment. I suspect that State Rep. Christine Hunchofsky doesn't want to give criminals rights, but we will ask her about that for sure. Um, I want to go back to the, the training component. We were at a gun range with an instructor this week. He was wearing a shirt proudly displaying his NRA affiliation and and he said he fully supports this law, but for the lack of training. He thought safety training, safe storage training was critical. How, what do you say to an NRA instructor who comes out with that kind of concern? Well, we encourage people to get training. Both of my boys are Boy Scouts, and they have had extensive gun training as part of what they do to become Scouts. We're not against training. I think responsible gun owners should do that. But I think this gun training mantra is being used as a red herring to simply come up with excuses and barriers to, again, put law-abiding citizens at a disadvantage versus criminals that don't care about our laws. We, we again, just want to create a level playing field between criminals and law-abiding citizens. So um, let's let's look at that criminal aspect. There there are some who say, um, to your point, and if, if we have misinformation, I am right here to correct it. So the fact that you can buy uh, purchase a gun, you will still need a background check. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. There's no change in the proposed in the law for how you acquire a gun. Although again, I would note that criminals buy guns without going through that process. Understood. But again, for those who are willing to follow our laws. Those, those requirements have not changed under this bill. Understood, okay, so part of Florida law is a lot of what really were unprecedented changes in 2018 after Marjorie Stoneman Douglas went through an utter catastrophe. Um, you, you actually voted for that package of bills back then uh, that did some really successful in hindsight things like the red flag laws, mental health, um, a lot of mental health budget, uh, backgrounding people who might not fit a gun owner profile. Um, and then you, weeks later, wanted to take away some of the components of that bill. Um, has that been successful? And should Florida remain a Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Public Safety Act state? Well, I supported most of the bill when I voted for it. I mean, in any large piece of legislation, there are often things that you don't like, but the good outweighs the bad. I think that bill on the whole has been great. And I, as I've talked to my sheriff and other law enforcement folks around the state, they're very glad we passed it. I'd vote for it again today. That doesn't mean that we can't move forward and continue to protect the rights of, Flor of Floridians by saying you don't have to get the government's permission in order to carry that gun that you've already gotten permission from the government to own. There is um, some studies I wanted to kind of throw out some facts and figures from, th these are from John Hopkins Center for Gun Violence Prevention. Um, 
I will be the first to say I'm sure there's a lot of research out there that anyone can pull from anywhere. These kind of stuck out to me for our discussion today, though, because it looks at the crime rate in the 25 states that, or some of the 25 states that do have permitless carry right now. And part of their statistics find that gun-related crime has increased from 10 to 12 percent over the last decade in those states. Do you have any kind of facts and figures that refute that? And, and are you concerned about that? I do. I'd tell you two things. One, correlation does not equal causation. So the fact that that exists doesn't mean it's related. But I will tell you this. The data shows that the overwhelming majority of gun-related crimes are conducted by people who aren't following the law. They're not following the law. They're buying guns they're not supposed to have. And I understood. So I mean, completely you, point taken. Yeah. Yeah. The notion that if you, uh, the left approaches these laws as though they're magic. I often note, how can, how can mass shootings happen in places like California or Chicago? They have restrictive gun laws. If gun laws work, those things wouldn't happen. So there's this false sense of security that somehow passing a gun law will actually prevent something. It doesn't because criminals don't follow the laws. As my sheriff in Brevard County says, you are your own first line of defense. We simply want to allow citizens to be able to protect themselves from criminals who don't follow the law. You, you represent Brevard County. A lot of sheriffs from around the state were, in fact, at the press conference are very supportive of this law. Um, we checked with our, we don't have, well, we have one sheriff in Broward County. South Florida has a sheriff in Monroe County and a public safety director in Miami-Dade County. And none of the above wanted to weigh in on this. Do you see this? Is there an urban and rural divide because of how guns are used differently in an urban landscape and a rural landscape? Well, I, I live in the ninth largest county in the country, and my sheriff was at the press conference. Mm -hmm. The Florida Sheriff's Association came out in support of this bill. So I can't speak to what every citizen and what every sheriff is doing in the state. It's my understanding the overwhelming majority support the bill, because whether you're in Key Largo or Umatilla or Brevard County, um, these issues can affect you. Representative Randy Fine, you have a week coming up in Tallahassee that doesn't even include this yet. A lot to go on, but we'll be watching it all. And we do appreciate your time this morning. Thanks so much for being with us. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay. And next, the opposing view, Parkland's rep, concerned about gun politics and public safety. She's next. permitless carry bill was officially filed this week. A fast and furious backlash erupted from opponents who fear that lifting background checks and licensing and firearms training will compromise public safety. Among those most vocal, the South Florida state rep whose district includes the Parkland community that lived catastrophic gun violence firsthand. State rep Christine Honchofsky, Democrat from Parkland, is with us right now. Christine, great to see you and thank you. And uh, before before we get started, were you able to listen to Rep Fine in our last segment? I was, Glennon. Thank you so much for having me today. I appreciate it. Of course, of course. Um, so I want to start out with something that he had said, and I want to get your reaction to. Uh, Randy Fine said that, that gun laws aren't some magic bullet that stops crime, that guns are dangerous because they're in the hands of criminals, and uh, Florida would like to even the playing field. I, I wonder what your reaction is to that. 
Yeah, so a couple of things. Um, in no way, shape, or form do I think, nor does anybody I know think, that criminals should have more rights uh, than non-criminals. Additionally, um, this is just another tool in the public safety toolbox. Um, there is no one law, there is no one policy that will eradicate gun violence. But we have many tools in the toolbox to work toward public safety, and that includes community uh, violence intervention programs, uh, universal background checks, red flag laws. Um, this is just um, requiring a permit to carry a concealed weapon is just one more tool in the public safety toolbox. And I don't understand the logic behind removing that. In fact, when you look at data, the data overwhelmingly supports requiring permits for concealed weapons for public safety. And in fact, when the other side is asked for data, um, they have yet been able to produce any data saying that uh, removing permit the permit um, and making permitless carry will in any way, shape, or form make our community safer. So um, Representative Fine had made the point that background checks are still required for gun purchases. There are still laws in place for purchasing handguns. And actually, this bill does have a framework of laws as well where, you, uh, where a person would and would not be able to carry a concealed weapon with or without a permit. Um, you, we are coming up on a week in a couple of days, the fifth year since catastrophe at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High. Um, would anything about this permitless bill have changed what that shooter was able to do? Well, a couple of things um, have happened since then, um, most uh, significantly the red flag laws. But I'd like to go back to the background check. We do not have universal background checks in the state of Florida. So you can still purchase a ghost gun um, online without going through a background check. You can still um, have a private transfer of firearms without a background check. So it's not that every person who acquires a firearm has gone through a background check. Having a permit requirement with concealed carry is just having one more tool in the toolbox uh, requiring a background check as well as, very importantly, um, having proof that you have some competency with a firearm. So I just want to make that very clear about the universal background checks. I would support uh, the legislature passing a universal background check bill to make sure that everybody is required to go through a background check when they purchase a firearm in the state of Florida. And, and I know listening to you this week, I know that the lack of a training component is one of the biggest concerns of opponents to this bill. Um, and I, I want and may I say, including, as I mentioned before, an instructor, a couple of instructors we spoke with this week, one in particular affiliated with the National Rifle Association, who uh, really has concerns about the lack of training component. But practically speaking, bad people with guns right now may not have that training component. So how do you see comporting any kind of safety training requirement, because it's still available and optional, of course, but a requirement and still maintaining the spirit of a free and permitless carry. Is, is that even doable? Um, no, I think we have to require the training. And listen, um, this whole idea of freedom and rights, there is nothing unconstitutional about requiring a permit to carry a concealed weapon. Um, that's why we have the law on the books. 
So I really think we need to go back to common sense here. I have um, had town halls in my district. I've done pre-session surveys, reached out to my community, and not a single person has asked for this. This is not an onerous process, but it is just one more um, safety measure that we can have to keep our community safe. And I go back to, again, the data showing that removing the permit requirement has led in other states to increased um, theft of firearms and increased gun violence. The, uh, a lot of the talk now, and of course the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, not only the five-year mark, but also the Public Safety uh, Act that has changed so much about gun law in Florida. We talk about that often. Uh, gun violence, of course, takes many forms, and um, my friend who runs Parents of Murdered Children deals with that every day, in, and that kind of gun violence on the streets. Um, how do you see this bill, if it becomes law changing any of that would it I think, I think this law is going to make our communities less safe um right right now if someone is carrying a, a weapon concealed they have to show a permit saying that they've gone through a background check and that they're allowed to be carrying a concealed weapon when you take that away then what happens well what's in the bill right now is let me just just for um viewers information there is a component to the bill that anyone carrying a concealed weapon must have identification must present it when asked by law enforcement uh, so that then law enforcement can go and do that backgrounding to see if this person is eligible because people who are not eligible to be carrying weapons felons etc still would not be but but do you see this permitless carry changing the face of violence on the streets as we know it I definitely don't think it's going to reduce violence. I do think it will um, make it more difficult um, to keep our communities safe. I think it will increase access to firearms. As I mentioned earlier, there's data showing that when um, permitless carry goes into effect in states that there's actually a rise in firearm thefts in uh, those states. State Rep. Christine Hunchofsky, we will be watching this bill and all the others and, and four more that you all will be in Tallahassee. Uh, we'll talk about one of them coming up next, but thank you again for always being there when we make the call to have you aboard. Appreciate that. Thank you so much, Glenn. I really appreciate it. Okay, up next, the late week news dump includes bills filed, as we said, for next week's special session. Among them, Florida's plan to move incoming migrants from anywhere to anywhere. A closer look at that when we come back. Flights from the border to Martha's Vineyard for dozens of Venezuelan migrants last fall were just the beginning. This week, lawmakers will likely pass bills and a budget for the governor's plan to move migrants from anywhere in the country to anywhere in the country paid for by, well, you. The so-called Transportation of Inspected Unauthorized Alien Transport Program is among several bills to be considered in special session this week. It effectively cleans up and makes official the once covert migrant transports that are facing several legal challenges. One of those legal challenges filed by State Senator Jason Pizzo, Democrat now repping North, uh, Northeast Aid and Eastern Broward, who is live right there with us today. We invited the sponsors of both the House bill and the Senate bill 
neither of them responded to invitations. So Jason Pizzo, it is all you. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning, Glenna. So um, first off, let me just ask you of these bills and anything in the bills that are filed, which have a lot of support, by the way, and opposition, of course, do they effectively fix the issues that put this program into your lawsuit, at least four others? Does that render all the lawsuits boot now? Uh, it shouldn't. Uh, so just by way of some quick background, uh, slapped on the back of a very large uh, bill, the appropriations bill, uh, without going through committees and without being vetted, uh, the governor's office asked uh, for $12 million of the taxpayers' money, uh, as, as most of us know from last September, to go and um, it was supposed to be to remove unauthorized aliens from the state of Florida. Right. And, and they came from fact, the border instead. And they went all the way to San Antonio and, and, and flew people to Martha's Vineyard, uh, just touching down at, at the airport here. So we sued based on a very narrow and very specific issue, which was um, they were creating new law, what's called on the back of the bill, without actually going properly to the legislature. Well, that, uh, that, the that, governor, was, that was yeah. actually, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, I, I want to make sure we get a lot in in the short time we have together, but that, that was my question. So now it's, it's going to be, by all accounts, by the support it has in a Republican majority and the governor's leadership, it's going to be his law uh, eventually. And so now it'll be a statute that the state of Florida has the ability and the budget to go and, and move migrants. And the governor had said, Proudly, it seemed that, hey, it's a deterrent. It, is he right? Uh, he's not. And I, mean, and I can sort of disseminate for your viewers the hypocrisy of the whole thing. Uh, if we were actually doing things inside of Florida where uh, dangerous returning unauthorized aliens were, um, I'd actually be in support of it. You know, you recall just maybe a little bit more than a week after uh, the September flights out of, out of Texas, we had a deputy sheriff in Pinellas County that was killed was killed by the operator of a front loader construction uh, machinery that was hired uh, and was working for a contractor working for FDOT. I mean, if that isn't tragic irony, I don't know what is. So we're not vetting our own people here. Uh, and, and most of your viewers know that if, if we actually went ahead and, and uh, raided places, whether it's uh, farms or uh, people's uh, homes with housekeepers, the restaurant industry, the hospitality industry, we could round up thousands of people who were here unauthorized, but the governor's not going to do that. And well, so, yeah. Go ahead. So, well, I, to your point, this bill is called transportation of inspected unauthorized aliens. So, I think in the vernacular, when we talk about unauthorized aliens, it's migrants who come without the proper process. And so, within the bill, it's a two-pager. It's easy to read. It says. It will specifically involve migrants who are eligible for transport or those who have been admitted, processed, and released to await parole. So they would not be unauthorized at all. They'd be actually authorized by the federal government to be in the country awaiting parole. So, so then who does this bill cover? Uh, the bill is going to cover people who actually have gone through that initial inspection. They may be awaiting what's called a credible fear interview if they're seeking asylum. But let me tell you what this bill is really doing. It seeks to go ahead and try to make our lawsuit moot for the up to one and a half, up to some reports, three or four million dollars that have been paid to, to one particular contractor. We're talking about $32,000 per person for the 49. It seeks to make that moot. The bill very specifically says all those payments were approved 
and you know they, they didn't render a lot of service for that and it's complete cronyism but then this seeks to expand to basically say now forget the florida nexus right we're talking about florida taxpayer dollars if there's a if there's rampant immigration issues if they're creating a huge life safety risk for for our for our citizens and our residents great within the four corners of the state of florida i'm sure you can round up 49 people but this bill actually seeks to expand, and let me tell you what it is. I don't think it's going to render our lawsuit moot. I think the judge is going to be, you know, a little put off by it. I think the court's going to rule in our favor as we go forward. Really what this is is, is poking and tempting uh, the federal, uh, the Biden administration. Um, at, at long last, when will the Biden administration come forward and say, listen, we handle immigration, you guys handle state issues. Glenn, you know, if you need driver's license help, we call my office because it's a state issue document. If you need passport help, we call one of our congressional partners in the federal government. Immigration is the purview of the federal government. Now, I'm going to be the first to tell you that our immigration system is horrible. Okay, I think the border is too porous. I think, you know, it, it's absolutely horrible. I'm the first person to admit it. But we need to raise our own children, as my father used to say, right here in the four corners of Florida. If you if we have legitimate concerns about safety, and, and here's the bottom line, and, and your engaged viewers know this better than anyone. These people are not taking jobs that any of our kids would otherwise have, okay? I wanna be very clear about that. For years and historically, it was they're coming in and they're undercutting us and we're not, our wages are suffering because someone else, these are not jobs that anybody's gonna take uh, here, but it would, it would cripple us. So the hypocrisy for me is, you know, right underneath his nose, from Tallahassee on down, you can round up thousands of people who are here unauthorized, but, they're critical to the state's economy, so he's never going to go knock on those doors. So this week during debate, I want to, you brought up the contractor, Vertol Systems is the name of the contractor in Destin and connected to the governor and his staff. Um, right now sitting with what I could find in the records, $1.565 million, although there have been reports it's even more, uh, for that one flight, others planned and never taken, but that one flight last fall, to your point, $32,000 uh, per immigrant to move. So because they're sitting... Glenn, I could put somebody... I can give somebody a full ride to Florida State University for 24000 <laughs> And we spend $32,000 per person well, to fly guess... them from some other state to another state that has no nexus to Florida. Understood. And, um, but, but more than that, they're sitting with payments for services not yet rendered. Uh, will there be an effort to get that money back, do you think, this week? Uh, I'm, I'm going to ask for it, and I think what even the bill sponsor can't deny is our governor's never signed the front of the paycheck. He's never made a payroll. He's never run a business. Who else uh, and where else other than political theater would you go ahead and make a $1 million payment, $950,000 payment, when it's against state process and procedure, you're supposed to get bids, you're supposed to have services performed, deposits are okay, but it goes against what's there. He waived the whole contracting thing, seeks to do it again. What, how can you run any operation, government or private, by paying a contractor almost a million dollars for services not performed, and no one's asked for it back? That's, well, the, that's I think the that obligation might, uh, of us run. Right. Yeah. I, I think that may, sounds like that may change this week. Uh, we will be watching. Senator Jason Pizzo, great to have you aboard today. Thank you, Glenn. Thanks. Next, the clash over the Black History class. Did College Board make its AP course better or bend to Florida politics? The first-hand answer when we come back.
History Month launched, so did a revised version of the AP Advanced Placement African American History course, initially rejected by Florida's Department of Education. The backlash was immediate allegations that the College Board that writes the curriculum caved to a political agenda. We take straight to the top Dr. Robert Patterson. He co-chairs the Committee of Educators who developed that course, the pilot, and the revisions to the final. Dr. Patterson, welcome aboard. Good morning. I'm so glad you're with us because there's one major question that we would love to hear College Board answer, and that is, did the College Board add, subtract, or revise that curriculum in that AP African American History course based on the objections or rejections of the Florida Department of Education, yay or nay? Explicitly nay. The College Board, the Development Committee, did not, quote, cave to the political pressure of the governor of Florida. Okay. That is correct uh, narrative. Okay, understood. I, I like that very specific answer because, a, as a follow-up, respectfully, the timing, the perception, the optics make it look as if it did. Right, and I'm, I'm glad that you make that point. And so let me offer a little bit of clarity on, on all of those matters. So... When the state of Florida issued its declaration on, I think it was January 12th of 13, the state of Florida was responding to a document that was never intended to be the AP African American Studies course. This was an early collection of topics, uh, writings, et cetera, that were based on a collection of syllabi that the College Board had gathered from professors across the unit, across the nation on what they teach in their introductory level college courses. And so that document was never intended to be the course. What happened was somehow the state of Florida got a copy of that and then it released this document objecting to the course maybe two weeks before this curriculum was supposed to be released publicly. And the curriculum that was released publicly is a revision of a pilot course that's now being taught in 60 schools across the nation. And so some of the um, objections are number one, they were not in, they're not even being in the pilot course as it stands. Number two, some of those same authors, some of those same topics are actually still in the course. They're embedded throughout the course and they are topics that students can take for their research project that they now do at the conclusion of the course that constitutes 20% of their exam grade. So, so that's interesting what you just said that because my, my next question was actually going to be about the specific curriculum because right. the, Florida has a new, a new law that frames how race, racial history and sex education can be taught. And right. those are exactly the kind of titles that were taken out of that, what we saw the draft pilot. Things like um, black queer feminism, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, reparations debate, all very very important in the context of black history, but suddenly no longer in the revised version. And yet, if you look at the curriculum, those subjects are, are kind of woven throughout. So, so now does this revised version stand a chance to be accepted in Florida? So one of the so one of the topics, I'm glad you I'm glad that you make this point. I had the opportunity to look at some of the language of the Woke Act, for example. 
And it would be impossible to teach um, African-American studies, quite frankly, impossible to teach American history without talking explicitly about race and how racism has advantaged some groups and disadvantaged other groups, right? And so the law itself would actually just make teaching these topics and related topics difficult, if not impossible. I have no idea whether or not the state of Florida is going to accept the curriculum that was released on February 1st, uh, because as you've said, if you take a deep dive into the curriculum, these topics are woven throughout. The students still have access to write about some of the other topics that were in the contemporary period that are now part of the research project, the opportunity. And more importantly, in the AP classroom, which is where the resources of secondary readings are collected, some of the very authors that the state of Florida has taken exception to will still be a part of the AP classroom. Uh, students and teachers will still have access to it, and it will still be a part of the curriculum. And so I am not sure if that's the case. I think what is important to understand and important for people watching, listening to recognize is that the, the governor of Florida stated what he meant, which is that the African-American studies course lacks educational value. It is my sincere estimation based on the lack of specificity and sometimes erroneous claims made about those topics that you've named in the document that the state of Florida sent, that those were just sort of um, justifications for a foregone conclusion and that the governor has made it very clear through some of the comments that he made this past week about getting rid of DEI programs across the state and universities, that this assault on African-American studies is part of a broader framework to not have conversations about race and other intersecting categories of identity and how they matter historically and contemporary in the contemporary moment as well. And, and I think uh, just in the short time we have together, I think the, the governor had also questioned the balance and now there is a black conservatism curriculum in this course. Was that is that coincidental? So 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 a couple of things. Let me be very clear about this. The course do it, was do it in thirty for, seconds if you can. Yeah, the revisions the revisions for this course were done in December, right? And so the, there's not a response to what the governor put forth. The response is to the experts and the teachers who came together to make this course a reality, and that's who the responses have been to and the feedback that we've given and they've given. Dr. Robert Patterson from College Board, it is great to hear from you firsthand, and we thank you for giving up a piece of your Sunday for us. Thank you. Up next, black history underway right now as Monford Point Marines and their families discover their connections. And a Local 10 reporter made that happen. Stay tuned for a look behind the scenes. black men to enlist in the United States Marine Corps could not have known then back in the 40s that they were making history. Recently, we aired a documentary about the Monfort Point Marines whose challenges and achievements went unmentioned and uncelebrated for decades. Locally, a South Florida woman is working to find and identify every one of them. And when Local 10's Leanne Morahone aired a report about that, something magical happened. Watch. Him. Last month, I met Mallory Berger of Coral Springs. In 2021, she discovered her late grandfather, Maurice Elburn Sr., was one of more than 20,000 men known as the Montford Point Marines. They knew they, they were the first to integrate the Marine Corps, but they could not realize the significance of it at that time. The discovery inspired a mission. And I proactively find the families, or if I'm lucky, 
the uh, uh, living Montfort Point Marines so that we can get their Congressional Gold Medal awarded to them. In the early 1940s, black Marines were kept separate from their white counterparts. They weren't allowed to train at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina with the white Marines, so they were sent to Montfort Point, forced to build their own camp in swampland, train in dangerous conditions, and adore racism and slurs. Despite the added hardship, they broke many Marine records, and the men were called to fight, and in some cases, die in the Pacific. The evidence of any kind of trauma, they were very good at hiding it. Due to poor record keeping, only about 10% of Montford Point Marines have been identified, and it's rare to find one still living. Those still around are in their 90s or older. Time is running out to honor them with a replica of the Congressional Gold Medal awarded collectively to the Montfort Point Marines in 2012. It's a little recognition of who they were and what they did. Our story yielded the discovery of a living Montfort Pointer in Lauder Hill, 101-year-old Corporal George Johnson. Where I've been, you won't believe it. I just was dumbfounded and in shock. This is like being in the presence of Prince or Michael Jackson. I mean, really. We know that time may not be on our side. For us as a black family, it is extremely important and also it's very honorable that we have a living legend living here with us. Two other South Florida families found Montford Point links because of our story. Corporal Mose Williams and Private First Class Joseph Brinson have passed away, but their legacy as Montford Pointers is now secured. And Leanne Morahone here for today's reporter debrief. Welcome to your inaugural <laughs> TWISIF engagement. It here. is an honor. Thank you. So that is, you know, we're talking all about African-American history. That is so cool. How did you connect that? So I actually have a local 10 viewer to thank for that. Someone reached out to us. They had seen the promos for the documentary that was going to be airing wow. after our uh, Martin Luther King Day Jr. parade coverage and they said hey you know one of the people that's featured in this documentary is actually from South Florida so I went and watched the documentary I got some names and basically I was able to track her down and she was willing to do an interview I also pitched the idea um, to sort of tie in with all our coverage and it totally worked out took I on mean, a life of its own <laughs> absolutely yeah and I couldn't have imagined it and I'm I'm really thrilled that so I, I'm kind of ticking off in my head calculating you know I don't do math so well but 1940s you know I'm not sure that there's many of these people who are still around to talk to so what an amazing time and moment in time to be able to you know rush 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 find these people put it on the air and then when this aired you got more calls. Yeah, so we did get a call at our assignment desk from uh, Grace King, who you saw briefly in our story, and she said, you know, my cousin, who I take care of now, is 101 years old, wow. and he has told us growing up... That's who was in the piece. Know, yes, mm -hmm. uh, about her cousin, uh, Corporal George Johnson, and she said, you know, he always talked about his time in the Marines. He even mentioned that he once took prisoners to Alcatraz. He just mentioned all these details, and they thought, this is weird, you know, maybe the timing matches up, and sure enough, he still had his discharge papers. They were able to look at them, and right there on the bottom, it said Montford Point. Why do you think that this amazing historical troop of people we didn't know about until, I guess, I don't want to say no one knew about it, but it, in the public venue, as such a moment in history and such a beautiful piece of the tapestry of the U.S. military, where has that knowledge been? 
it's it's existed right but it's sort of been swept under the rug and I think that there's a few reasons for that number one let's go back to when this integration began first of all to even get blacks to be part of the Marines as part of those who were fighting was a fight in itself. They had to go to the leadership. They actually went all the way up to the president and said, basically, if we don't start integrating these branches of the military, then we're going to march on Washington. So they started letting black men join the Marines to train to fight. Because before that, anything that they were part of as far as the military was in a support role. They were not allowed to be soldiers or Marines like the white men were. And so once you started getting that, well, now you're in the door, but guess what? You're still black, so we're going to treat you as such. And so they were subject to racism. Uh, they were forced to build their own camp. They were not allowed to train at Camp Lejeune with the white Marines, even so, to step so foot in Camp Lejeune. They had to be point. escorted. Yes, so they were given this plot of land that was sort of near Camp Lejeune in North Carolina that was absolute swamp land, and they had to build it quite literally from the ground up. Wow. So there is not only the people, but the story behind it. You are so immersed in it now, I can see. So. So you come into this home and here's Corporal George Johnson, 101, looking at least probably <laughs> 20 years younger. What, what was that reaction? What was that moment like? Well, it was really great to not only meet him, but also to meet his family. Yeah. They were so thrilled about this and also that he, you know, as the phrase goes, gets his flowers before it gets too late because they obviously have concerns about his health um, and just how much longer he would be around to be able to get this sort of this congressional medal replica. So there is a congressional medal for the Montfort Point Marines and then do they get a medal? Does he get a medal? Yes, so there was one that was uh, issued as a collective in two 2012. There was a you know, that had to go through Congress and everything to actually get to that point. They were awarded as a collective and then um, individual Marines or their families, if they've passed on, can get this replica that you're looking at now. That's uh, the replica that Mallory Berger has on behalf of her grandfather, who was a Montfort Point Marine, and that's kind of what started the ball rolling for her to get involved, was her own grandfather's connection, which, interestingly enough, she said he never discussed, ever. Why do you think that is? Did well, she, say? she says that she believes it's partly maybe just the trauma of not just the hardship of being a Marine at that time, but also what they observed. W World War II. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, some of them did fight. Some of them did die for this country. And then on top of it, just everything they were subject to. I mean, these Marines would go into town and be doubted for being Marines if they were wearing their uniform. They'd see a black man in a Marine uniform and say, there's no way. What are you doing? I mean, it would be, it's basically being accused of stolen valor, which is like the phrase we hear now. What history to be told. So tomorrow is a ceremony of some sorts. I'm sure you'll cover it. Tell yes. us about that. So as you saw in the piece, uh, Corporal George Johnson, who is luckily still very much with us, and the family of Corporal Mose Williams will receive this Congressional Gold Medal replica. A lot of things needed to be done to make this ceremony happen because typically, if other Montfort Pointers were discovered, they would wait until August when they kind of do a reunion of sorts over in North Carolina. Family didn't want to wait that long. Um, At 101, sure you cannot blame them. The time, yeah, the clock <laughs> is ticking, and so they wanted yeah. to make sure this happens. So it's happening uh, tomorrow at noon at the uh, African American Studies Library in Fort Lauderdale, and it is open to the public. There's a private reception after for family, but the actual ceremony itself is open, so if anyone wants to attend, I know some local veterans have expressed a desire to attend, it is open. That's amazing, and you will be attending 
I will, yes, I, we'll be I covering that. I think the live producer is adding you to her show right now. <laughs> <laughs> Already. Leanne Warhone, this was amazing. Thank you so much thank for you. being here. And I have to thank Mallory Berger quickly. She, thank you, Mallory. Her passion is contagious. <laughs> thank you, Mallory. All right, stay tuned. We'll be right back. today's interviews and also download the This Week in South Florida podcast. All you have to do is scan that QR code with your phone and it takes you right to the This Week in South Florida section of Local10.com. And you know you are a big part of this program. We are so easy to find and follow and reach out on social media. There it is right there at Glenna WPLG, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You know we're online 24-7. Thank you so much for being with us this hour. Remember, keep in touch.